Hello, I'm Rhiannon. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, part five of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. As Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government cracks down on dissent, can India still call itself the largest democracy on earth? Since receiving its independence in 1947, India has stood as a bastion of democracy in the Indo-Pacific. While India boasts a liberal democratic constitution and a strong culture of political participation, its democratic rankings have been decreasing. India's rank on the Global Democracy Index has once again slipped behind. India ranked 53rd in 2020 for the state of democracy. Many of these rankings point to the ruling BJP government, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, as to why India is slipping in global democratic standings. The BJP has close ties to a right-wing Hindu nationalist paramilitary and has come into global news more recently as the country is witnessing increased pressure on human rights organisations, the targeting and intimidation of journalists and activists, and an influx of violence and riots against non-Hindu religious minorities. I can draw a bit of a parallel uh, between Modi's rise and Trump's rise in the US that Modi is more of the effect of something that has been brewing for 30, 40 years in India. Today's guest is Moktik Kalkani, an entrepreneur, neuroscientist, author and filmmaker from India who currently lives and works in the United States. We chat about the relationship between democracy, Indian and Hindu nationalism and authoritarianism, Modi's populist India and how he's influenced Hindu nationalism, and whether the decline in democracy in India will be influencing the region more broadly. Moktik, welcome. We're so excited to have you on the Global Questions podcast. Thanks for having me. To kick us off, are you able to give us a brief overview of who you are, your professional and academic career, and how you've become interested in international affairs? Sure. I might be one of the most unusual uh, interviewees you've had, uh, because I don't come from a traditional international affairs background. My uh, training was actually in uh, engineering in India, and then uh, I moved back to the U.S. and I studied uh, biophysics. But I think my interest in international affairs uh, and particularly democracies uh, uh, was sparked by a lot of traveling. So I've done um, a lot of backpacking, which I know is very popular in Australia. Uh, Traveled, you know, more than 50 countries, tried to understand different cultures, different societies, uh, different ways of functioning and uh, that's what led me to uh, uh, being vocal about the issues that I've noticed about democracy international affairs around the world. Amazing it's a very uh, interesting career so far. So today we're focusing on the interrelation between Indian nationalism, democracy and authoritarianism Are you able to give a brief history of India and its relationship to democracy? Yeah, sure. I think it's important to uh, mention that the rise of Indian democracy has been fairly different compared to uh, the rise of democracy in the US, for example, or even Australia or the UK, in the sense that it's a civilizational state. Uh, India has a history of four to five thousand years 
And that history includes uh, different empires, some of which were what I can call, quote unquote, indigenous empires, you know, empires that were ruled by Indians. There were empires that were ruled by Central Asian, primarily Islamic uh, rulers. And then we had the 200 years of colonization by the British, after which India, for the first time, tried to become a republic, which led to India's independence in 1947 and then setting up of the republic in 1950. So when India was established as a republic, it already had several different fault lines that it was dealing with. So uh, three, four that come to my mind. One, there was always this uh, Hindu-Muslim divide. When India was established in 1947, it, the Indian subcontinent was actually divided on religious lines. Pakistan was separated as a Muslim country, and India decided to remain a secular, uh, you know, all uh, religions welcome kind of a republic. That was one fault line. Uh, the second fault line, which is much older than that, is actually the Hindu system of caste. Uh, and, you know, what you can do in life was determined by what kind of a family you were born in. So that was another fault line. Uh, there is another fault line of linguistics. So India has 15 official languages. Uh, you can actually conduct business in 15 different languages in India. And if you go to India, there is hundreds of different languages that are spoken. And if you look at the history of India, different empires actually came from parts of India that had different languages. So that naturally leads to that kind of sort of competition between uh, uh, different regions that speak different languages. And then I think the biggest fault line uh, when India was established as a republic was poverty. So when the British left, if, if you actually trace the history of India ranked in terms of GDP, India and China were competing for the top spot until the British came into India. So even after seven, eight hundred years of Islamic rule, uh, India was still one of the top two countries in terms of GDP. And then the British come in and in 200 years, they practically wipe out all the wealth of India and leave India as an extremely poor country. So I think that's the context in which India was established as a republic. Mm, thank you for outlining those fault lines. We'll definitely be touching on that later in the interview, so I think it's good to have that context. Turning now to India's current Prime Minister Narendra Modi, could you explain to our listeners kind of what led to his triumph and what forces were behind um, his success in the election um, back in 2014? I can draw a bit of a parallel uh, between Modi's rise and Trump's rise in the US, that Modi is more of the effect of something that has been brewing for 30, 40 years in India, rather than being the cause. So since the 1980s, this resentment has been brewing in Indian society. Uh, and the, the guiding principle behind this was that Hindus have traditionally been a very fragmented society because of historical factors. 
because of religious factors, because of uh, external invasions, and Hindus need to um, uh, get together. If India needs to rise out of uh, its poverty and lack of opportunity and appeasement of minorities, we have to become one force and fight for Hindu rights. Uh, now, that is a very debatable uh, issue, but I think that's what's happened since the 1980s until 2014, when finally the uh, openly Hindu party, right? They, they had no qualms about saying that, hey, we are Hindu nationalists. Uh, uh, you know, they, they kind of tried to downplay their social agenda uh, and, you know, try to uh, portray themselves as, as economic reformers and, you know, a party that is going to uh, uh, lead to opportunity and entrepreneurship. But, but that's how the elections of 2014 were fought. And then for the first time in India, an openly Hindu nationalist party got a majority in the Indian parliament. Looking to kind of aspects of authoritarianism, do you think that Modi has influenced this? And do you think that contributed to the decline in India's democracy today as it stands? Uh, so because of uh, a lack of education, because of poverty, because of lack of understanding of democratic institutions, it has been slightly easier in India to have these kinds of leaders that can... I don't want to say destroy democratic institutions, but decimate them, you know, make them less effective. Uh, so Modi, even before he was the prime minister, he was the chief minister of an Indian, Indian state called Gujarat. And he was the chief minister of that state for more than two terms. And people in the media, Indian media, had already started saying that he has these authoritative tendencies that, you know, he tries to tame the bureaucracy, he doesn't listen to uh, the opposition, he controls the media, so on and so forth. So this was not a huge surprise. Uh, when he became the prime minister, the Indian media knew what to expect from him. Uh, but the hope was that he had run the election as an economic reformer, he had run the 2014 election as somebody who would hopefully not dial up the Hindu nationalist rhetoric and somebody who would focus on infrastructure development and making India uh, a stronger international force. But unfortunately, as soon as he came to power, uh, he tried to replicate his same behavior from being the chief minister of Gujarat as a very authoritative leader, uh, somebody who completely shunned the media after he became the prime minister, he's not given a single press conference after he became a prime minister. And then because a majority of his voter base is from the Hindu nationalist, he had to pander to them as well. Hmm. A lot of what Hindu nationalism kind of supports, and you touched on this before with the Muslim and Hindu divide, Within the framework of Hindu nationalism, 
we're seeing more increasingly that Muslims and religious minorities are often left out of the picture, in some cases um, discriminated against um, or have violence perpetrated against them. Do you think that at its core this is a product of India's rivalry with Pakistan? Well, um, yes and no. Uh I, I think that fault line has always been there. There has uh, always been this narrative that uh, Hinduism or, you know, the purest form of a Hindu society was doing very well before the Central Asian Muslim rulers came in and ruined everything. Now, there is a lot of evidence that shows that some of those rulers were more egalitarian, Muslim rulers that I'm talking about. And some of them were pretty ruthless. So uh, just like in other parts of the world, there is a lot of history in India where Muslim rulers came in, they destroyed temples and built mosques. Uh, This is a reality that cannot be denied. And then when India and Pakistan were divided based on explicitly religious lines, uh, there was a strong sentiment in India that India should not be welcoming uh, of all religions kind of a democracy. India, I mean, if Pakistan is going to be an Islamic country, then India should be a Hindu country. So this sentiment was always there, but the framers of the Indian constitution, uh, the founding fathers of India were extremely liberal. They, uh, you know, the people who wrote the constitution, the constituent assembly, they actually studied constitutions from all around the world and they decided that India's future should be similar to Western democracies. And now this is a backlash. And uh, India is going through this extreme right kind of uh, a government right now. The unfortunate part for the Indian future is that along with this pendulum shift, what Modi has ensured is that the media is completely biased now. It's all 80, 90% of India is bought out by uh, Modi and his uh, underlings. He has systematically weakened a lot of the democratic institutions. He is weakening the federal structure of India where, you know, center state, they have their own uh, uh, rights and responsibilities. He's weakening that. And then most importantly, we're also seeing a strong majoritarian component. So if the Hindu majority starts feeling entitled that we can make all the rules and we can force discriminating rules down the throats of Muslims and Christians, it's going to be very difficult to get out of that. Yeah, so this discussion of the relationship or rivalry or tensions between um, the kind of majoritarian Hindu nationalism and other religious minorities, a lot of the discussion in a particular case study centres around the situation in Kashmir. Do you think that the situation and the rivalry between India and Pakistan in Kashmir has affected India's democratic systems? Uh, To a certain extent, I would say yes, but we again have to go back to uh, the 1947 uh, um, freedom struggle in India and how the Kashmir issue came about. So when the British decided to partition 
what they called India, it was some collection of 500 different princely states. And what they generally decided was that, okay, if your population is majority Muslim, you'll go to Pakistan. If you're majority Hindu, you'll go to India. Or if you want to be independent, you can decide to be independent. So the ruling king of Kashmir at that point, Jammu and Kashmir, he was Hindu and the majority of the population was uh, Muslim. And the king decided to say, I uh, say, I want to want to be independent. And within six months, Pakistan attacked uh, Jammu and Kashmir. Saying that, hey, you know, we're going to take this over because this is a majority Muslim state. And the Hindu king had no recourse. He didn't have an army. So under pressure, he, I mean, he ran to the Indian ruler saying, hey, I need some help. So the Indian uh, state said, hey, sign this accession agreement and we'll protect you. And what happened in that was uh, the, uh, the state of Jammu and Kashmir was given a special status, right? This was a negotiated settlement. It was done under pressure. But uh, Jammu and Kashmir agreed that we'll become a part of India as long as every law passed by the Indian parliament will then go to the state assembly. And then we will vote on it. And then we will decide if that Indian law applies to the state of Jammu and Kashmir. So this was the Article 370. But this was always... Uh, one of the sore points between the India-Pakistan relations, right? Uh, Pakistan always claimed that at least part of Kashmir or maybe all of Kashmir is ours. And India kept claiming, well, we have a piece of paper saying that they've acceded to us. But since uh, Modi and his political party, for them, this was uh, a very important uh, point in their manifesto. They always had abrogation of 370 in their agenda. So it's not a surprise that they got rid of 370. Uh, I personally would say that sooner or later it had to go, but the way it was done was undemocratic. And that has naturally had an effect on Indian democracy because when the central government realized that it can take this kind of an action in the name of populism, in the name of majoritarianism, what have you, they can do the same thing in other parts of India as well. Um, so recently, uh, what happened was the central government changed uh, the decision-making structure of the state of Delhi. So Delhi, in addition to being the capital city of India, is also one of the states. In a way, it's similar to Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Uh, it has a special status. It doesn't have all the rights of other states in India, but still it has its own legislature, it has its own state elections every five years. And the political party and the chief minister who's running the state of Delhi right now is a potential future rival for Modi. So once they notice that they abrogated 370 and the judiciary didn't really take any action, they felt emboldened to take away uh, some of the rights of the state of Delhi. So now the state of Delhi is actually being run by a centrally appointed uh, administrator in spite of the fact that it has a legislature, it has 
you know, a lawmaking body. It has an executive uh, branch. Most of them are just, uh, you know, figureheads now. This kind of brings me to my last question about the overall status of democracy in not just India but in the in the region. What do you think the decline of democracy in India mean for the stability of South Asia and the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I think uh, that's that's an interesting question uh, because uh, there is already a rise of authoritarianism in China, right? We're seeing that there was a little bit of hope in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s that after economic revival, China would also become a bit more democratic, would give people some freedom of expression and their rights. Uh, So China has uh, started imposing its will on all its neighbors. Uh, Because China is itself authoritarian, it would prefer all its neighbors to be authoritarian so that it benefits them. But having said that, I think it's important for India to remain a democratic society with strong institutions to fight against this rising authoritarianism uh, in its neighborhood. Pakistan has already become an extremely authoritarian and religious uh, state, Uh, but Indian democracy goes, that's going to be a huge loss for not just the region, but the entire world. Uh, Because... India is potentially the only democratic rival of the size of China that can, at some future point, look China eye to eye. Uh, So I think it's extremely important that, uh, uh, you know, the forces in India and international forces who are interested in seeing India as a democratic society uh, fight back against uh, this kind of, uh, you know, narrative that is prevalent in India about India, you know, being this Hindu, nationalist, majoritarian kind of a society. Absolutely. It's a very interesting time for the region and the relationship between India and China is definitely one to keep an eye on. Muktik, thank you so much for our discussion today. If any of our listeners want to know more about you, about India and democracy, read some of your work or just get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? I keep posting my op-eds and uh, other interviews uh, on my website so uh, you can have access to all my writings there as well. Amazing. We will link to your website in the description. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That's all for this week's in-depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, Josh and Hugh's fortnightly recap of news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for memes, quizzes and regular news updates. Link is in the episode description. We'll see you next week.